Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Napalm. It's incendiary gel that sticks to the skin and burns to the bone. It came into the world on Valentine's Day 1942 at a secret Harvard War Research Laboratory. On March 9th, 1945, it created an inferno that killed over 87,500 people in Tokyo. That's more than died in the atomic explosions on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. It went on to incinerate 64 of Japan's largest cities. It's the bomb that got the press, but napalm did the work. After the Second World War, there was a taboo around the use of nuclear weapons, yet napalm's use skyrocketed with infamous scenes of death and destruction in the Korean War, Vietnam, and beyond. So who actually invented napalm? Is it still in use today? And what does its deployment in conflict tell us about the depths that human beings are willing to go to in war? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And to find answers to these questions, I've invited expert historian Bob Neer from Columbia University onto the podcast. Bob's book on napalm has greatly inspired my own work on the history of weaponry and war, so it was a true honour to welcome him onto the podcast to hear about one of the most destructive and indiscriminate weapons in history. Hi, Bob. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. Where in the world are you? Right now, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as a matter of fact, where napalm was first created. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it was on the playing fields of Harvard. And we will get to that point very, very soon, because that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're talking about that rather incendiary topic, if you will, of napalm. And it's not often that we talk about just one specific weapon on this podcast. I mean, we have done in the past. We've spoken about nuclear weapons, and we've had Fred Kaplan on. We've spoken about cluster bombs uh, with John Ismay, who you know well. We focus on drones, some would say far too often, because it's usually just me talking about drones to anyone who will listen. But the reason why we focus on these weapons is because they're weapons that have transformed war in one way or another, usually a rather heinous way. And I feel like napalm belongs on this list of impactful revolutionary weapons. And in many ways, it's a, a kind of new low for humanity. And so perhaps with this in mind, you could start by taking us through some of the characteristics of the weapon and tell us what napalm actually is. Napalm is a gelled incendiary. The word just describes any kind of thickened hydrocarbon. So as you doubtless know from your own life experiences, heat is transmitted most directly by whatever is burning. And then, for example, at the head of a match, the hottest part of a match is just the very tip of the match where it's actually combusting. After that, above the match and then to the sides and then below it. So the great innovation or effectiveness of napalm is that it is a sticky substance that transfers the radiant energy from the heat of the burning process into directly into whatever it is touching and as a result is a very deadly weapon if it comes into contact with your skin it will burn it all the way down to the bone 
It also, as a result of the genius innovations of the Harvard scientists who invented it, combined a method of igniting it with the actual substance itself using white phosphorus. That's a chemical which combusts when brought into contact with oxygen at an extremely high temperature. So a contemporary napalm munition has a gelled incendiary and white phosphorus embedded in it, typically by high explosive, which when it gets into a person can continue to smolder for a very great period of time, in effect reigniting as somebody tries to treat the wound and produces absolutely horrific injuries as a result. Good gracious. I mean, it truly is a horrendous, harmful weapon that causes such disproportionate suffering. And it makes me think many weapons that have been invented throughout history have come from civilian research, and then they end up being weaponized and put to what you might call misuse. We think about atomic weapons, for example. That would come from civilian research and end up being one of the most destructive weapons that the world has ever seen, if not the most destructive weapon the world has ever seen. It's hard to think that someone would deliberately want to invent a weapon like napalm. So why was it invented, Bob? It was invented specifically as a military incendiary. Prior to World War II, there was a lot of research on incendiary weapons. And indeed, fire has been a weapon for centuries, millennia. Yes, Greek fire, for example. Greek fire. And for example, in World War I, there were flamethrower devices that used rubber as a substrate to thicken the incendiary material. As soon as it becomes thicker, it can stick to things. Sticky things transmit heat energy more efficiently than those that don't, and so consequently can cause more damage. But after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941 and World War II began, the U.S. lost access to most supplies of rubber and consequently couldn't use those to thicken incendiaries. And so under the auspices of the National Defense Research Committee, which was a part of the U.S. government established just prior to the beginning of World War II, to organize the universities and research scientists of the country to develop technological advances in the areas that were perceived to have the greatest military utility, radar, sonar, proximity fuses, explosives, and incendiary weapons. And so Harvard University collaborated with the U.S. government by providing researchers and paying their salaries. Professor Louis Fieser, a chemistry professor, was just a, a genius and had done very important work isolating vitamin K and other kinds of chemical researches. So he was paid by the university, and the university provided laboratory space in the basement of a building close to what is now the first-year dining hall. And the U.S. government provided research funding, about $5 million in today's currency, bombshells and other equipment that was necessary for this research project. So the purpose of the research was to develop an alternate chemical material that could thicken hydrocarbons, any kind of hydrocarbon, kerosene, gasoline, when mixed with the chemical substrate, the napalm powder, produces different kinds of napalms. So you might consider it like a gasoline napalm, a kerosene napalm, a benzene napalm. They're all napalms because they're thickened. And it was that research project which produced this weapon. It wasn't just the chemistry that was the critical element here. The research scientists at Harvard, I describe them as geniuses in my book, and I think that 
word is appropriate. But in addition to figuring out an alternate formulation that would thicken hydrocarbon and make it sticky, and by the way, not thicken it too much because you don't want something that will just sit there in a lump. You want something that will create a kind of splattering fire cloud with globs that are big enough to stick to things but aren't so big that it just produces one unit and at the same time isn't so thin that it produces a kind of mist and doesn't stick to things in large enough amounts. As I say, in addition to producing this incendiary thickening agent, they also devised a way of igniting it because napalm itself, the material that they produce, this kind of thickened incendiary, is typically not so super flammable. It's not, not like a can of gasoline that's about to blow up immediately. And so the technique that they developed was to encase a kind of tube of the chemical white phosphorus inside a, let's say, 70-pound bomb container full of napalm and inside the white phosphorus tube, put a little thin tube of TNT or high explosive. So when the napalm bomb design that they created explodes, the explosive drives the white phosphorus into the napalm material and that scatters over a wide area as a fire cloud. That white phosphorus ignites when it comes into contact with air and it burns at a very high temperature. So I think those are the two key scientific achievements of this research team. One was the thickening element, and the other one was the kind of like actual bomb design that created this very devastating weapon. Okay, so it's all well and good being a genius in a lab at Harvard making these sorts of weapons. But what's the strategic end to this? What's the military effectiveness behind it? You say it's kind of a next step from an incendiary weapon. But if we think of incendiary weapons dropped from the air, then they're all about spreading fire as quickly as possible across a city. Was that the aim for this particular weapon? Was it more of a strategic weapon? Or was it what we'd call an anti-personnel weapon? Was it designed to target and to burn human beings? Fieser says that they always designed it to target structures that he gave to the New York Times during the Vietnam War period when this invention became extremely controversial in a way that it really hadn't been controversial during World War II or the Korean War or other conflicts where it was used. He said, we designed it to burn buildings, not babies or Buddhists. So that was his testimony. On the other hand, the American military forces did extensive testing of this new munition on mock-ups of civilian structures that they designed. German buildings that were very precisely recreated with different kinds of roofs characteristic of different region building styles in different regions of Germany. They reactivated a furniture factory that had been closed in order to build furniture that was characteristic of German dwellings and put it in the model buildings that they built. They built whole villages of model German and Japanese workers' housing in Utah at a military base in Utah. And there were other tests as well on civilian dwellings. I think it's pretty clear that the intention from early on in the conflict was to use it for bombardment of urban areas and places where people lived. Those are still structures. So you can say that the burning of individual people is a kind of incidental result. But if you drop tens of thousands of napalm bombs on a city, like the city of Tokyo, for example, it's pretty clear that you're going to hit people as well as structures. And then when it does hit human flesh, it just doesn't stop burning, no matter how hard you try. It goes deep into the muscular frame of a human, and there's nothing you can do. 
you can put it out by putting mud on the wound or eventually cleaning and removing the little bits of gel and white phosphorus. But the injuries that it creates are absolutely horrific. And of course, burn injuries are some of the most painful types of injuries that people can suffer. I think it's interesting to observe, though, and it's a question that I think bears a lot of consideration at different levels. When I started doing my project, my book about napalm, I thought of it at some times as if it was evil itself, almost like the Stephen King book Cujo, which is about a dog that goes into a hole and finds evil there and becomes himself or itself evil. And so I was talking to Kim Fook. She's the really wonderful woman who is the little girl that was burned when she was nine years old by napalm running down a road in Vietnam, bombed by South Vietnamese air crew that were off target, and, but using material that was made in the United States. Anyway, I asked her what she thought and whether she thought that napalm was in itself evil or not. And her answer, which I to this day really follow myself, because I feel like if anybody is in a position to answer this question, she is. She said it wasn't, she didn't think it was evil itself. She said it was like a knife. A knife can be used for terrible things or it can be used for beneficial things. And it's really what people do with it and how people use it that is where you can find the evil or not. And so I feel a little bit the same way, that it's wrong to project our own ideas on this material. You could say perhaps the same thing about radioactivity or other things that can really seriously injure people and focus much more on the kind of warfare, the use of this device, and what it says about all of us. Well, take us into some details about the use of this device during the Second World War. Am I right in thinking that it was first used on Berlin back in 1944. So this is towards the quite an intense period of fighting in Europe. We're getting ready for D-Day. Was this all about trying to degrade the German forces as much as possible ready for the invasion? And how effective was it? The calendar of the development, the technical development of napalm, the testing of it, the figuring out how to make it, actually during the testing, a different thickening agent was initially chosen by the U.S. military. It was made by DuPont. And they made thousands of bombs, filled them up with napalm, shipped them over to Britain during a tremendously intense period of fighting, and one in which it was often very costly and difficult to transport materials from North America to Europe. And then discovered, to their dismay, that a lot of these bombs the material had come out of solution, almost like yogurt in a refrigerator, when if you leave it there for a few days, it forms a kind of layer on the top of the yogurt. They wouldn't explode properly. They wouldn't burn properly. So that's when they decided not to use that formulation and instead to choose the napalm formulation that had been invented at Harvard, which was much, much more stable over time and through transportation. And it's indeed, to this day, one of its this type of weapons characteristic benefits is that it's inexpensive to make and can be mixed in the field and it can be cooled down to very cold temperatures as in, for example, a high altitude Bombay or stored in very hot temperatures as in, for example, a shed or a warehouse or something in the tropics. So as a result of those research constraints and manufacturing issues and delivery details, the supply of napalm was relatively constrained during much of the fighting in Europe. But as soon as they could get it, they started using it. As far as I can tell, the first use was in the invasion of Sicily, Operation Husky. 
And then it was used to support the D-Day landings in France. It was used, the famous American historian Howard Zinn in one of his books talks about himself. He was a bombardier during World War II, dropping napalm bombs or bombs filled with napalm, uh, German positions along the French coast. And so they just, it was a relatively new weapon, and they used as much of it as they could find, as quickly as they could find it. That was characteristic also of the war in the Pacific. I don't think it was used against Berlin. It was definitely used to support American positions in the Ardennes. And there were a kind of an improvised quality too, field mixing units and sort of experimentation with different ways of igniting the material, dropping it first on targets and then coming back and igniting them later and things like that. You see, that's absolutely fascinating to me, Bob, because I didn't know that at all, but it kind of makes sense. It goes completely against what Pfizer said in terms of this being a, a weapon that's targeting infrastructure and buildings, because I've, I've often thought, how does napalm and its use by the US during the Second World War fit into any idea of a precision bombing doctrine and the deployment of bombs on Europe? But what you're saying here is when it's used during the invasions of, of Italy, during Operation Husky, and on D-Day, then it most certainly is an anti-personnel weapon. This is about going in and getting that weapon in onto as many troops as possible, and to rendering them useless. Yeah, it was used, for example, in the Falaise pocket, when the advancing Allied forces had trapped a lot of German soldiers, and then they could use napalm against them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good for history to try to take people at their word. So let's say that Fieser, when he was first thinking of this, was thinking about burning up things. But as I said, the way that they started testing it and then the way that it was actually deployed, it's pretty clear it was used, being used against people as well as against structures. And of course, you're absolutely right, because then when we move towards the Pacific campaign, you have this combination of burning structures, specifically wood and paper structures, and of course, the people that are inside as well. Is it at this point that napalm really, I guess, has its day and shows the US military just how effective it can be? Yes. The way I think about it is that incendiary weapons in general, you mentioned Greek fire, were quite powerful for many centuries. There are extraordinary historical stories about fire warriors, even in the Roman times, recoveries of little clay pots used for fire grenades in early warfare. And to me, the real reason that they stopped being used so much was the development of cannon, because they created a greater range. And so no matter how ferocious it might be to have a dragon-headed siphon at the top of your ship breathing fire on uh, attacking vessels in the harbor at Constantinople, like the Indiana Jones clip where the guy comes out and threatens Indiana Jones with a sword and he pulls out his gun and he shoots him. That to me really illustrates the paradigm that distance matters, range matters a tremendous amount in military affairs. So to me, the great significance for napalm was air power because air power allows you to deliver incendiary weapons accurately and at a distance, which had never previously, had not been possible since the 1400s. And so to your observation, the tremendous use of napalm, especially in World War II, but in subsequent conflicts as well, has come from delivery systems that use airplanes. So flamethrowers are dramatic weapons and were used, for example, on Iwo Jima and other places during the Second World War. And tanks have been modified to shoot fire, like fire-breathing dragons of ancient times and so forth. But all of that use is very small compared to the death and destruction wrought by napalm drop from airplanes. And so it's really in Japan that that 
kind of use of this munition first happens during World War II. And I think that really, in many ways, gives birth to the modern age, because, of course, this system of using weapons to burn up whole cities is the essential idea behind mutually assured destruction. And many people would say that it, nuclear weapons are actually a form of incendiary weapon, because although they do a tremendous amount of damage through the explosion, it's actually this superheated ring of fire that they create that radiates out that does a lot of the damage from that type of a weapon. In practice, the death wrought by napalm, for example, on Tokyo, but also on 63 of Japan's 66 largest cities through napalm was as bad as, or in some cases worse than, that by the atomic detonations over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. More people died at Tokyo on the night of March 9th, 1945, which was when Curtis LeMay created this type of modern warfare using napalm then died at either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. This chemistry-based incendiary urged a kind of warfare which we now take for granted, but through hydrogen bombs. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and throughout June on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm marking the 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio. It would be hard to think of Shakespeare without plays like Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Antony and Cleopatra, Macbeth, As You Like It, and A Winter's Tale. But without the first folio, none of these would have survived. This is not a book designed to be carried around. This is a book which establishes itself in the library, in the study, and that physicality tells us something about how the plays are being rebranded, reframed for a new generation. Throughout this month, I'm delving deep into the first folio, how it was produced, who made it, and to what extent it has ensured Shakespeare's enduring legacy. So do join me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If I remember correctly, I don't think LeMay really appreciated or saw much use in using the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He was pretty clear in his strategy. He was going to go systematically through the major cities of Japan and burn them down one by one until the Japanese surrendered. How was he able to create those whirlwinds of fire that burnt through these vast cities? It couldn't have just been through napalm alone. Was it a mix of 
high explosive bombs and and of, of, of cluster bombs all mixed together or was it just napalm it was mostly just napalm there were a few other explosives mixed in but the great innovation that LeMay brought in Japan and specifically on March 9th 1945 was to abandon the American doctrine of precision bombing. In practice, it wasn't really so precise, of course, as you know well, and as your forthcoming book on precision attacks can doubtless describe. The idea, though, on March 9th was just to forget about all of that. And instead of attacking in formation from a high altitude during the daytime, to attack at night not in any really particular formation, organizing the airplanes so that they wouldn't hit each other in the air, but not really focusing on some kind of precise array of airplanes in the sky. And then following a technique developed by the British in their incendiary attacks on Dresden and Hamburg and massive bombing attacks, area attacks on other German cities, to light a giant X on the target using Pathfinder airplanes, the symbolism of an enormous burning cross on a city that's going to be incinerated is really quite striking. And then follow that up with tens of thousands of small six-pound napalm bombs, 6.7-pound napalm bombs, organized in clusters so that the devastating effect of the incendiaries would be accentuated by their quantity by the area over which they would be scattered, and then on particular on March 9th by a hurricane for gale-forced winds. So of course fire is heat plus oxygen, and so if you have heat from white phosphorus ignited napalm, which as I explained, the white phosphorus burns at a high temperature, but also napalm burns at a high temperature, so you have very hot material that's being fanned by very high winds, created one of the first firestorms, artificial fire hurricanes that previously had been limited to things like volcanic eruptions and so forth, but became more frequent following the invention of napalm. There are other incendiary weapons, of course. Dresden was incinerated with thermite bombs, and the British had different technologies. But the great advantage of napalm, as I mentioned, was that it was inexpensive and easy to produce in large quantities on site or in in the Marianas Islands in that case. So let's take stock of this for one second. We come to the end of the Second World War, and if you look at the sheer scale of death and destruction, more people were killed in the inferno caused by napalm on Tokyo than died in the single explosions, the atomic explosions, on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Yet, as we move into the post-Second World War period and into the start of the Cold War period, we have this massive attempt at the international control of atomic weapons. Major fear of a world-ending Armageddon scenario, and we put as many controls in place on nuclear weapons as possible. Yet, on the other side of this, we have these so-called limited wars. Wars in Korea and in Vietnam, these conventional conflicts. And what is it that defines these conflicts? Well, it is napalm. So why is it, Bob, that there isn't the controls put in place on napalm that there are on nuclear weapons? Why isn't there a taboo around napalm at this point when there is around atomic bombs? So lots of excellent points there that you raise. First of all, the casualty numbers at Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Tokyo, and other massive urban attacks in World War II 
are the subject of lots of research and debate. Different parties have their own reasons for trying to make them bigger or smaller. But I'm sticking with my proposition that more people died at Tokyo on March 9th than ever before in the history of human warfare or since. So in that sense, napalm is arguably the most deadly munition. Of course, hydrogen bombs are orders of magnitude greater than the atomic weapons that were dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There are other, just to finish off this kind of interesting kind of subset of the discussion, there are other injuries, of course, that result from nuclear weapons, cancers, other kinds of radiation burns and things. So people don't always die right away, but they die in follow-on effects. But as one professor once wonderfully pointed out to me, this wasn't really my own insight, there are follow-on effects from getting a city burned up and being like turned out of your house in wintertime. You can get pneumonia, for example, from breathing in air that's filled with smoke. So napalm weapons and incendiary weapons in general also have follow-on effects, which can be very devastating and deadly. With respect to your question about why there was so much more attention to nuclear weapons than to incendiary weapons. First of all, my work and the sort of research that I did on napalm really changed my thinking in many ways about the modern world. I used to think that nuclear weapons had dramatically changed the world that we live in. And I do still accept that hydrogen weapons are orders of magnitude greater than atomic weapons. Let's hope that we never ever see them used against large collections of people. But Certainly with respect to the kinds of weapons that were detonated at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, even if those weapons had never been created, we would still, I think, be living in a world in which the possibility of London or Copenhagen or Boston or Los Angeles being burned to the ground with little notice would exist. It probably would just come from thousands of napalm-bearing cruise missiles rather than with one giant bomb. So anyway, I just see it as a result more, the kind of world we're living in is more of a result of many technologies rather than exclusively nuclear weapons technologies. And then the last question you had asked was about the taboos. I actually think that there is a strong taboo now as a result of the U.S. defeat in the Vietnam War against napalm. And so that this weapon, as a result of its association with Vietnam particularly, and portrayal in many different movies and films, and even discussions like this one, has assumed a kind of a diabolical monster status. And so when military forces use napalm in conflicts, it produces a political reaction which is disproportionate to the military value of the device, and consequently controls military forces and prevents them from using it. It's actually, I think, a fascinating example of the power of civil society or ordinary people to constrain military power. And what I mean by that is that, for example, the United States used napalm in its attack against Iraq, but it generated so much discussion. One napalm strike on an Iraqi observation post elicited many articles and press conferences and discussions that would never have been accompanying an attack on a similar observation post with explosives or bullets. And so it's just such a hassle for people to use it that it's not used in practice. So if Bashar al-Assad uses napalm against, for example, a, a high school where kids were playing in civil war, that generated a tremendous amount of discussion and disapprobation. But the same kind of strafing attack would have been perhaps very criticized, but not generated the same publicity of napalm. So I think napalm 
In my book, I say it was born a hero and it lives a pariah. And its role has really changed in public imagination. Well, we'll put to one side for a second the shocking fact that napalm was used in 2003 during the US and coalition invasion of Iraq, because we know full well by that point that napalm does have this kind of taboo around it, and like you say, it becomes a a pariah within international affairs. But it becomes a pariah because of its use during Korea and Vietnam. But my question to you, Bob, is how did its use change? Because you can target vast cities in Germany or in Japan during the Second World War. But what are you targeting with napalm in Korea and Vietnam? It was used differently in those two conflicts and differently at different times in those conflicts. I also think that it was not tremendously criticized during the Korean War. There were some criticisms of napalm and the horrific effects that it can have on people, but nothing compared to the public adoption of napalm as a symbol during the Vietnam War of everything that was objectionable about that conflict for many people. During the Korean War, napalm my assessment of the history had a kind of heroic role. It held the line against the communist advance. It saved the perimeter of the United Nations forces battling for freedom against this shocking surprise attack. I'm giving you the kind of public imagination of this weapon at that time. And although it is true that it inflicted grisly injuries on the people that it came into contact with in Korea, just as it had done in Japan, and also, for example, in the Greek Civil War, when the U.S. supplied it to the Western allied forces there and used it to help crush a communist rebellion in that country after World War II. In Korea, those injuries were censored and not discussed much by opponents of the war. And indeed, there was no comparable anti-Korean war movement in the United States that there was about the Vietnam War. So to me, it was really the Vietnam conflict that created Napalm's criminal reputation, as it were. And movements by international lawyers to control and restrict the use of Napalm didn't start until the US defeat in Vietnam was becoming almost too clear to ignore. So early in the 1970s was when international lawyers first started to think about regulating napalm, not in the 1950s during the Korean conflict. But why did they decide to focus on napalm at this point in time? Was it that photo you mentioned, that infamous photo by Nick Utz of the young girl of Kim Fook running from the horrors of conflict? Was it that photo that sparked a movement towards trying to control and end the use of napalm? No, I don't think so. I think the reason that people started to control it was that Americans don't like losers and that napalm was not perceived as a particularly effective munition after the U.S. defeat in Vietnam. People wanted to find a reason that the U.S. lost in the Vietnam War, and napalm became a kind of scapegoat for that defeat. That's perhaps a little bit of a depressing conclusion, one might say, and it's not the only element of the conclusion. I think that there are many millions of people that are appalled by the death and destruction that come from war. But it's hard for me to explain why somebody would conceive of the exact same munition used in a very similar context to be suddenly worthy of regulation in the 1970s, but not worthy of regulation earlier in the 1960s or in the 1950s. You'd like to think, in a positive way, that it would be human suffering that triggers 
the fact that we should never use this weapon in war again, that the sight of what it does to small children might mean that the United States wouldn't want to use this. I mean, when you've done your research, Bob, and you've gone through the files, and you, and you know, we say that war is a continuation of politics by other means. Were there not US presidents, secretaries of defence, who were saying, this weapon is making us look like barbarians? I know that there's a quote from Churchill that says that this is very cruel, and he, he accused the US of torturing a great masses of people. Was there never any political consciousness in the United States that seemed to grasp this? Yes. Many people lament the cruelty of war, and in particular, the horrific injuries that napalm causes. During my research, I think there is a broad school of thought that takes the view that, as the U.S. General Sherman said, war is hell. And so this is the worst kind of behavior that people engage in. And there is a resistance in many cases to drawing gradations of hellacious behavior, if you will. The idea that it's worse to burn somebody alive or to starve them to death or to shoot them in the head, those are all elements of a practice that is arguably barbaric in itself. And so there is that whole school of thought there are also, I think, a lot of convenient excuses. So the memo that you're talking about that Churchill wrote, where he said, I'm concerned about just splashing about napalm. In practice, Churchill accepted devastating attacks on civilians by bombing and by artillery and by many other techniques. And so it's not totally clear whether he he certainly didn't call off the bombers or call off the attacks or even call off the, the use of napalm. Maybe he just wrote that memo to have you and me say, gee, he was quite a good guy and he just seems not to have been able to somehow implement his actions. I'm not opposed to the memo. I think, fine, like we should criticize and we should consider these horrific consequences. But I don't think that we should say that napalm is itself like somehow just so terrible that if we stop doing that, it'll be all right to shoot little children. You make a very good point, and it is hard to consider, I suppose, Churchill one of an arbiter of moral justice in war, or perhaps one who would show restraint in conflict. But we're recording this, Bob, at a, a very, well, tragic time in European politics, and the fact that we have an open conflict on the European continent, that there are scenes in Ukraine of cities like Bakhmut who, which are very much reminiscent of the entire destruction of cities during the Second World War. And, and Putin has been accused of using white phosphorus on Bakhmut to, well, it's used as a, a an illuminant, right? To light up the city, to send in more precise bombing raids or more precise artillery strikes. At least that's the justification for its use. But with all of this in mind and the fact that we are living in a time where the bombardment of entire cities and the destruction of entire cities is back with us in contemporary politics and the day-to-day -day affairs of warfare, could you tell us when the last time napalm was used and if it is banned from use in war today? On a hopeful note, I would say that to a significant degree, the nature of war is changing. And 
that may not be so much because of an improved morality for people as reasons of expediency. But it's worth observing that the type of conflict that we observed in World War II, specifically involving napalm, or even in Korea or Vietnam, or other conflicts as well. The British used napalm in Kenya. The French used lots of napalm in their Indochina war as well, and many other locations too. We haven't seen huge incendiary strikes against the city of Kiev. We haven't seen area bombardment attacks. It's true that the city of Bakhmut has been destroyed as badly as some of the devastation that was observed in earlier conflicts, but I would not say that's characteristic of this horrific conflict. And so one of the questions that I had when I was researching my book is why don't we use napalm so much anymore? And I think that Part of that is, as I've mentioned, the defeat of the U.S. in Vietnam and the search for explanations there and the conclusion that part of the reason was because of the horrific quality of this munition and its relative military ineffectiveness for reasons we can discuss in more detail if you want. But it's also because global society is changing. And the United States did not incinerate Baghdad the way that it did Tokyo in my opinion, partly because the goal of the invasion of Iraq was not to annihilate and destroy the entire country. It was to try to integrate it into the U.S. economic and political system. You'll recall that part of the purpose was to bring democracy to Iraq. And in a business sense, the citizens there are customers or participants in the U.S.-led economic system. And so we don't want to kill them. And we certainly don't want to incinerate them with napalm because it causes hard feelings. And more than hard feelings, it's, it's one of the most horrific things people can possibly do to each other. And so I think that these are examples of how the society that we're living in is different from the society in 1945. It's fascinating, Bob. Thank you so much. I mean, you're right. It's hard to win hearts and minds when you're dropping napalm on entire cities. And, you know, perhaps it is those legacies of the horrors of Vietnam that still live with us today. I I admire your optimism. I'm going to try and soak it in. I am very worried about the current state of the war in Ukraine. I feel like there is an escalation of the air war, and I'm worried that it will see retaliatory strikes back and forth onto cities and increased destruction and targeting of civilians. But I hope you're right. I hope we have seen a change in the nature and the character of warfare, one that sees limitations and firm red lines that prohibit that targeting of civilians with weapons like napalm and all the other destructive weapons that we have out there today. Bob, thank you so much once again for your time. You have to tell us, what is the name of your book and where can we buy it? The name of that book is Napalm, an American Biography. I gave it that title to have a sort of double meaning. It's the story of napalm as if it was a person, which is therefore an American, but it's also a story about the biography of this amazing country, the United States of America. You can find it anywhere. It was published by Harvard University Press, and I'm pleased to announce that I just recorded an audiobook of it. Getting around to that after 10 years, people still seem to be interested, so I'll make that available through Audible in the next few weeks. Well, listeners will know that if I endorse a book or recommend a book, then I mean it, and I couldn't recommend this book more. It's one of those books that actually inspired me to write my own book. So please go out there, buy it, listen to it. It is fantastic. Bob, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, and congratulations on your wonderful program.
thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.